Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we start off the month with a best-of March duel, as I will be representing the best of March 1987 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, boogieing back to the 70s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? That's right. I got March of 1977, and uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, I do realize there might have been a little bit of blowback from our new Irish listener base when I brought on Adam Sweeney thinking he was Irish, but he's actually uh, of Scottish descent. I think this week we'll make up for it a little bit. <laughs> also joining us on the panel and bringing the 411 from the 90s, welcome back to the show, Joe Finley. I'm here mainly for the Welsh base. Um, other than that, <laughs> uh, I've been playing single dad today. My wife had to take off, and she told me she's not coming back if I don't win this week, so we'll see how it goes. Oh, <laughs> You tried that last time you were on, dude. Yeah, no, I know, and it worked, so there we go. <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. This week's special guest judge is the actor, writer, and director you know from films like One Crazy Summer and God Bless America and the television classics Mad Men and Dharma and Greg. All rise for Judge Joel Murray. Hey, hey. Hi, hi. It's good to be here. I've been quiet up until now because I, I thought I shouldn't speak. But uh, from now on, completely impartial. Uh, Joe, I don't care. Uh, you know, I've got four kids. Yeah. Uh, some were born in the 80s, some born in the 90s, one born in 2000. So I'm, I'm, I'm spanning decades on that and 100 uh, percent Irish. When I went to Scotland, I uh, went to Edinburgh. The first thing they said is, oh, you're a Murray. You're probably you're probably Scottish, and they had to leave here. A hundred percent Irish. We always thought until we were told we were probably just criminals. Great. So now all the uh, the Irish people that we had coming in that I told them Adam Sweeney was hundred percent Irish. I might be wrong again. Yeah. Don't don't hate us. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It it is what it is. We're Americans. Next week's judge Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 100% Irish. <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal and Patty O'Furniture. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying until I get it. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. 
All right, let's go right down to Judge Joel Murray for the coin toss. Okay, uh, I'm gonna I, I'm, I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna flip this uh, free Ted Lasso CD that I just got from the Screen Actors Guild, uh, which I'll be voting on, impartial judge in that one as well. <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna flip the Ted Lasso side up, or uh, I don't know the songs. Of, I guess it's all the people that are nominated on the other side. All right, Joe, why don't you call it this week? All right, uh, let's go Ted Lasso and heads. Ted's is heads. Here we go. Here's the flip. You saw it. Sorry, it's tails, Joe. I could have turned that over at any point. I could have <laughs> cheated already. Sorry, impartial judge. He's swinging a hard gavel. All right, Man Crush, you won the coin toss, and you take control of the board. What category are we going with first? All right, uh, unprecedented here. We're going with movies first. Just going to knock this one out here. We're going to March 11th, 1977. As it seems like every single time I get the 70s, I get a disaster film. I, I take that back, actually, because I had Freebie and the Bean last time. But <laughs> most times I get the 70s, I get another disaster flick. With that being said, let's uh, not let a good thing die. So here's another disaster flick. And uh, <laughs> it's never seen, like, I've never seen this movie ever until last night. And I'll be totally honest, about 35 minutes into this movie, I was ready to turn it off. But since I did pay $3.99 to rent this from Prime because I don't have it, <laughs> I, I stuck through it. And I actually, I'm glad that I did because it picks up big time. It's one of those movies where you're sitting in your lounger and you're kind of like, you're, it's a disaster flick. So you're kind of like, uh, uh, like, no, no, no. Like, it's one of those. So I'm glad I stuck with it because by the end, I actually like this movie. Uh, this is actually the third of four movies in this particular disaster series. As it seems like people in the 70s, you grew up, I'm sure, through the 70s, Joel. Why did people adore these disaster films? Because they just kept coming out. And all the news in the 70s that we've come across, it's always bad. So, like, why would you want to go see it in the theater afterwards? Why would you go in a building? Why would you take a plane? Why would you go near a volcano? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't get it. Well, I'm glad you said that. Why not just stay up all night in disco? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't get it. Why is be happy? Because the rest of the news that I see in the 70s is terrible. But uh, this one, it did bring in $30 million at the box office. It was roughly about $130 million in 2021. It was nominated for two Oscars in two uh, pretty heralded Oscar categories. As a matter of fact, you had a uh, Best Art Direction, uh, Set Decoration, and uh, Best Costume Design. So it was up there. And uh, even had its own theme park attraction at Universal Studios for several years. Uh, but this right here, this is pretty wild. Of the four airport movies, and this is an airport film here, this was the only one that didn't have a plane from the film crash in real life. So you had Airport 1970. There was a 707 that crashed in Brazil in 1989 from that movie. Airport 1975, there's a Beechcraft Baron that collided with another plane in 1989 again. Coincidentally, it actually collided with the 747 in that movie. And then in airport 1979, there's a Concorde and that Concorde crashed in Paris in 2000. That is some eerie shit, but this movie, no crash, no crash. So that, Just that's so, the good, a lot thing. of snow. <laughs> no, no, not in this one. This one, they went into the water. Oh. They, they crashed uh, a spoiler here if you haven't seen it, but they crash into the so-called uh, Bermuda triangle. Uh, but if you're, uh, if you're going to be boarding an airplane anytime soon, I would probably stay away from this particular movie. But if not, check out the movie Airport 77. And then let me know when you get to the scene where the woman watches her husband drown 
And then the doctor tries to force feed her a bottle of scotch to make her feel better. It just, <laughs> I'm watching. I'm like, what the fuck? He was going right according to the rules in 1977. <laughs> he was reading the rules right out of a book. And it was probably, you know, scotch. A, a bad scotch. It was probably Johnny Walker's, you know, red. I, uh, I couldn't tell. It was like a little tiny airplane bottle. Yeah. So, like, what good is that going to do you? Trash. Oh. All right, Joe Finley. What did you bring for the movies round? All righty. Well, I'm bringing a bit of a biopic with me on this one. Uh, he was the king of all media, and he became the king of film very briefly as Howard Stern releases Private Parts on March 7th, 1997. It's based on the autobiographical chapters of the 1993 book of the same title, and Stern only wrote that book because an original deal about his life story fell through uh, that was supposed to become a movie. So didn't get the movie, wrote the book, got the movie. Uh, just a few little tidbits about this thing. The movie featured uh, Paul Giamatti and Allison Janney in roles. Uh, the entire cast of the Howard Stern show, including a lot of uh, producers and other personalities from the show, appear and play themselves. Uh, Edie Falco and James Murray from The Impractical Jokers both made uh, uncredited appearances in the movie. Director Eli Roth was Howard Stern's intern on set. Uh, from Modern Family, Sarah Hyland makes her film debut as Howard Stern's daughter. And Camille Grammer of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fame was the famed bikini girl introducing each scene. Uh, the movie was number one when it opened. You know, doesn't get hotter than Howard Stern, especially around that time. So I give you private parts. March 7th. Good one. I, uh, I got to meet Howard uh, before he did this movie. And I, I was doing a television show uh called Love and War with Jay Thomas and Annie Potts, originally Susan Day, who was replaced by Annie Potts. But Stern came and visited us, and he and uh, Jay Thomas had a fake feud for years and years. They were on back-to-back, -back and they were actually really good friends. And Howard came, he couldn't have been nicer or more mild-mannered, but he was asking questions about what everybody did on the set. And, like, he was already thinking about making his movie and, and cutting corners. Uh, <laughs> Allison Janney, of course, uh, played my wife in the pilot of Shameless, the first uh, episode. And uh, because she had two jobs, couldn't uh, do the series. So Joan Cusack replaced her, uh, ended up being my creepy wife on that, on that show. <laughs> Edie Falco didn't realize she was uh, on Practical Jokers. In Practical Jokers. <laughs> <laughs> She's a background actress. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, for my movie selection, I have a fantastic film that deals with mental health and true friendship. And it was a movie that broke down racial barriers long before it was cool. And it showed us all that the police officers can be heroes. And, you know, this movie just happens to be a damn fine Christmas movie to boot. Released March 6, 1987, I give you the little-known buddy cop film Lethal Weapon, starring Mel Gibson and oh. Danny Glover. Of course, <laughs> Lethal Weapon is a movie that we all know and love. So sometimes here on the show, it's fun to uh, go to our good friends at newspapers.com and see if we can find a bad review for this now iconic classic film. And oh boy, did we this time. In the News and Observer out of Raleigh, North Carolina, March 11th, 1987, we'll pick out uh, a few selections here from this lengthy lambasting of this film written by Scott Ross where the headline reads, Lethal Weapon Misfires. It was just teed up too hot. <laughs> <laughs>
Lethal Weapon refuses to rise to the occasion. Lethal Weapon pairs an interesting actor, Mel Gibson, and a truly fine one, Danny Glover, and then employs them to make jackasses out of themselves for two violent hours. Glover emerges from Lethal Weapon with his dignity and perhaps his reputation basically intact. But for Gibson, oh, how the mighty fall. Gary Busey as the homicidal maniac Joshua has a lean, hungry look, underplaying a stock role. Glover is equally understated, managing to turn Roger's catchphrase, I'm getting too old for this, into an eloquent lament. Gibson, on the other hand, overdoes. He overacts a minor freakout early in the film to such an extent that the audience laughs nervously. He flares his nostrils like a maniacal stallion. He rolls his eyeballs like someone's in the throes of an epileptic seizure and nearly frosts at the mouth as he talks about killing the same way that old ball players brag about scoring an impossible double play. The best thing that can be said about Gibson's makeshift American accent is that it becomes gradually less irritating as the movie becomes more familiar. Donner is in his element in the final half of the film when he when he's able to film Mel Gibson's electroshock torture in nauseous detail. Maybe Gibson wasn't acting. He may have been lamenting the loss of his career. So I give you Lethal Whoa. Weapon, March 6, 1987. How do these guys get jobs? And that was the last time that Mel Gibson got any bad press. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He had fantastic hair in every scene. Mel, nobody had better hair. Uh, Donner uh, directed that and then went on later that year to direct a film that included all of my brothers and myself. Uh, because he had proved himself as being a comedic holiday master uh, and did Scrooged later that year that came out in about November, I believe. I wonder what that review from that guy would say about (laughs) Scrooged. Scrooged. Somebody Scrooged this whole thing up. Uh, (laughs) But uh, Danny Glover, uh, I did a a small film called Mr. Pig with. Uh, I flew down to Mexico and they flew me down there and... uh, I got there and they said, we're not supposed to ask this, but if you could shoot tonight, we could send you home in the morning. And uh, I'm like, well, I'm kind of came all the way to Mexico. No, we could do this. You could film tonight. And we, we started at like one in the morning and shot this scene with Danny Glover. And Danny's one of those actors that doesn't talk very well. I couldn't, I was across the table from him and couldn't hear him. But uh, anyway, we finished the scene about five in the morning and they put me on a plane in the morning. I was back in LA. Like, hey. oh, there goes your vacation. I think I think they saved like forty one dollars in per diem, but uh, yeah, <laughs> right back, right back. All right, well, I got to give out a winner out of those. You sure do. I I, I was hoping for a different uh, airplane movie, uh, airport movie with George Kennedy and and Dean Martin and, and yeah, George Kennedy. He's actually in this for about uh, ninety seconds because they brought him back. He's like the expert of the plane. So right. when the plane crashed, it's very small part. But that guy loved his disaster film. It was he a was reoccurring role too. then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was in the other airport as an expert. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to give Man Crush the win then because I, I would be <laughs> impartial to let the other guys win because I know people on both those movies. And it would seem like someone had gotten to me early. Oh, <laughs> Ten yeah. points. Ten points. Right. We know that means nothing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you fly away with that round. And more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category. Oh, man. Let's go news. 
Let's just get the news out. And again, it's the 70s. I try not to go with the dark shit. Cause, and it's all over the 70s. So I went with something else. So let's go March 10th, 1977. I figured like with the landing of NASA's uh, Perseverance rover on February 18th, this has a bit of legs to it. And we get to see just how far we've come with space exploration over the past 40 years. Did you guys happen to catch that footage of uh, the Perseverance landing? Yeah. yeah that was I was thinking that's weird. That just happened again. But oh, I, I thought you meant it happened in 77. <laughs> no, it, not quite as good, but... I mean, matter of fact, they did release a, a pretty awesome panoramic shot yesterday. I mean, there's absolutely nothing on the planet at all, but it's pretty remarkable either and, way. And they sent back sound. Yeah, it's it's nuts. The sound of space. Finally. So now you'll get to see what in 40 years. OK, I mean, aside from that story right there, the title of this article alone, if I pass it up in the paper and I was using newspapers.com, the title is. Scientists find five rings around Uranus. And the article says, scientists discovered something more startling than ring around your collar yesterday. They found rings around Uranus. While scientists cannot yet determine what the significance of these rings are, they have been, qu they have been quick to hail the mere feat of finding the rings as being a landmark technological advancement. At no time in the past 320 years have there been any of the world's astronomers have been able to locate any planet other than Saturn with rings. Apparently, the right condition and instruments are the only way now available to observe details to planets further out than Uranus. Uranus happens to be the seventh planet from the sun and some 1.8 million miles from Earth. It might well be that someday in the distant future, a successor to the space shuttle may make a fantastic voyage to the newfound rings of Uranus to bring back samples to our planet Samples from Uranus. I mean, it's just sounds interesting. Nonstop. I'm instantly five again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it gets better. It it may not be till the uh, the era that we truly. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. It may not be till that era that we have the true significance of the new astronomical discovery is known. Even if the discovery never holds any more significance for Earth than ring around the collar, we remain convinced that the future of our planet is in space. So that's why I brought up the other one 40 years later. Now we're landing on Mars. And uh, P.S. Since 1977, they have discovered there are actually 13 rings Wait. around Uranus. So it just it all depends, I guess, on how well you wipe. If you really know. get close up to Uranus, you can really see. You, that's when the rings really start to separate themselves. <laughs> and 40 years later, they figured out a way to make cuddly polar bears the, the proper thing to talk about wiping around your anus to get rid of those rings. <laughs> I don't understand that whatsoever. What do polar bears have to do with this? Uh, well, that's good news. That's good news. Good to know. Good things might come of this. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what did you bring for the news round? Well, mine's vaguely space-related. I want to talk about a comet. I want to talk about Halley's Comet. And I want to talk about oh. a group of people who thought they were going to get on a spaceship behind it. If they all committed suicide. Yeah, I went dark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Heaven's Gate suicide occurred between March 22nd to March 25th, roughly, according to the investigation. Uh, a group of people led by uh, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, also known as, known as Doe and T or Bo and Peep, uh, believed that they were in borrowed bodies on this planet and they needed to graduate to the next level by exiting their bodies, joining a rocket ship in space, and then being placed into their brand new bodies. And they brought 
a number of people with them, 39 in all, including themselves, also including the brother of Nichelle Nichols, Thomas Nichols, was a part of that group. And in three separate groups committed a ritual suicide. Uh, they created a package with VHS tapes and letters about their beliefs and what they believed was about to happen next. And they sent it to some media outlets and some people who were formally affiliated with Heaven's Gate. Uh, one of those people actually went and discovered the bodies. Uh, any, If you ever see the videotape footage of it, it is actually that person uh, just with a handheld camera before he even called the police going in there and videotaping it. And then he uh, made an anonymous phone call to 911, uh, alerting them of the issue. It was discovered years later that it was him. Uh, so... It was a pretty huge deal. The Heaven's Gate cult still talked about today, especially with uh, all the documentaries that have been coming out about cults and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's always been kind of an iconic one. And so that's what I give you is third week of March, the Heaven's Gate suicides. That's dark. Yeah, that is dark. Thanks for going there and reminding <laughs> that, us of what can happen. So early in the uh -huh. game. Well, yeah. well, A, that's what I'm best known for on this show. And B, yes. uh, if you guys want to know a little bit more about my literature, go to my website and we'll check it out. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the sad thing was that it, this happened so early in the history of the universe, because if it happened a few years later, they could have mass marketed the custom made matching shoes they had. They, <laughs> they all had matching tennis shoes to go to the outer space. In, and I, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but a few years later, they could have had custom made Nikes that they could have put together. And, you know, guys would be pulling those out of the NBA games every once in a while on the <laughs> where would you want day, at the NBA. But uh, 39. Never forget, people. Never forget. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, for my news selection, we'll turn over to the sports and entertainment sections. Monday, March 30th, 1987. That was the day the Indiana Hoosiers won the school's fifth national championship. Led by All-American standout Steve Alford and Hall of Fame head coach The General Bobby Knight, who would win his third national title that night against Syracuse with a game-winning jump shot by Keith Smart with five seconds of play remaining in the championship game. And like the late, great Paul Harvey would often tell us, we'll go over to the Daily Journal in Franklin, Indiana for the rest of the story. Hoosiers or Hoosiers alums had a tough decision. Two Indiana filmmakers passed up a chance to attend Monday's Academy Awards to watch their alma mater post a dramatic win in the NCAA Basketball Championship. Writer David Anspa and director Angelo Pizzo, Indiana University fraternity brothers from the 1960s, watched the IU Hoosiers pull out a victory over Syracuse in quite similar to the one they depicted in what else? Hoosiers. Hoosiers, loosely based on the 1954 state basketball championship, claimed by a tiny high school, was nominated for two Academy Awards. While the real Hoosiers came up winners Monday night, Hollywood's Hoosiers came up a little empty-handed. Then the article goes on to talk about these two filmmakers and how they wanted to attend all of these tournament games, and they just couldn't. There was too many other commitments. They wanted to support actor Dennis Hopper, so they went to all the other award ceremonies. But then when uh, Indiana beat UNLV to go to the championship game, they came up with this awesome plan where they were going to bring a portable two-inch television set to the Oscars ceremony and then watch the game live there. But then they realized 
they're going to broadcast this to over a billion people worldwide. There's going to be a ton of electrical equipment. They won't get a signal. So they decided instead of missing the game, they're going to miss the Oscars. And the two filmmakers from Hoosiers <laughs> did not go. And instead, they set up two televisions in his apartment and watched both the Indiana Hoosiers win the national title and uh, their movie Hoosiers lose the award at the same time. Damn. So that's what I got from my news story. The 1987 NCAA championship won by the Indiana Hoosiers and the men who love them. Well, that's uh, pretty fantastic. I was going to disqualify you for like bringing up a movie. And I thought maybe that was cheating. But when Paul Harvey went to page three and we found out <laughs> the additional story and we found out that it wasn't about the second best movie about Indiana sports breaking away, of course, being a <laughs> sports movie. Uh, and whatever happened to Keith Smart? But anyway, uh, that those guys watching the Oscars rather than uh, you know being there is is only better than Michael Shannon. Uh, I believe it was last year won the Oscar sitting in the uh, Old Town Ale House in Chicago. When we used yes, to drink nice. uh, Farley and I, but. Uh, they, they didn't cut to him either. It just, I know somebody was there. It says, yeah, Michael Shannon was just drinking at the bar next to us. Like you won. Yeah. Sweet. Good. Rounds on me. I got to give that to somebody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No rings around your anus. Heard it too many times. Uh, Heaven's gate just down. I, I, I got to give it to uh, just the breaking away. Story, the story about breaking away that wasn't mentioned. Subliminal <laughs> story about Paul Paul Dooley's wonderful character as the father. So you take that one, Mark. Ten points. Wait a minute. Was what was was breaking away the bicycle movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah with the, yeah, that's that's a great flick. <laughs> that's pretty good. Paul Dooley's wonderful in it. All right, so I tie up this game and take control of the board, heading into our final one point round. Uh, you know what, gentlemen? Let's go over to the hot products round. Hot products. All right. So we'll go over to the Detroit Free Press in Detroit, Michigan, March 30th, 1987, where the headline reads, The mania surrounds the Silverdome. Traffic pins wrestling fans into a five-mile tag team. <laughs> Navin Holler's scalper charged just $4.50. Other scalpers were asking 500 for the $100 ringside tickets to WrestleMania 3, which stuffed the Silver Dome and clogged surrounding roadways for hours Sunday afternoon. Heller got a cut rate because his scalper, well, he shaved his head. Haller, 28, said he did it in honor of King Kong Bundy, the bald, burly, and belligerent bad guy featured on one of the 12 matches that drew what was announced as 93,173 people. Now, that number, of course, over the years has been disputed, but they do call it the largest crowd ever for an indoor entertainment event. Traffic was backed up for more than five miles, state police said. They generally refrain from unsolicited headbutts and hammerlocks, even though a minor technical problem kept the gates closed until 2.10 p.m., 40 minutes past schedule. A little wait wasn't going to bother Holler. He and a friend drove from a small town 60 miles outside of Philadelphia to recline in the $100 seats that he paid $4.50 for and said, hey, if you don't spend it, what good is it? So my hot product are tickets for WrestleMania 3. Four fifty. Yeah. That's ridiculous. But you got to get your head shaved by a scalper. That's, That's pretty great. 
and I gotta, you know, I gotta give you some credit because it gives me a chance to talk about Heels, the television show I'll be working on. I'm, I'm working on with my wife right now for the Stars Network. Uh, Mike uh, O'Malley, my good friend, is exec producing it. My wife and I are playing uh, kind of the sponsors of a small market wrestling league in Duffy, uh, Georgia. And uh, I, I own the pawn shop and the, the car dealership, uh, used car dealership. I'm kind of a uh, Bible thumper hypocrite. Uh, but it, it, it's a lot of fun and it's got some really good fake wrestling in it and uh, some great actors and some surprise, surprise breakout stars. James Harrison in an acting role. Uh, he's wrestling? Super Bowl, two-time Super Bowl champion. Yeah, he's wrestling. He's really good. It does flips and shit. He's uh, huge. That yeah. dude is <laughs> enormous. Massive. Check out his Instagram page sometime. Just he's he's doing like 400 pounds like it's nothing. Incredible. Holy anyway. shit. Anyway. It's Stephen Amell's in that, right? That's right. Yeah. I want to see that. When's that, uh, when's that coming out on Stars? I don't know. I'm just kind of hoping for a paycheck. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going back uh, to shoot the final two episodes. Like we're, we're going in a couple of days. My wife and I actually play a married couple. Uh, but it was supposed originally they were going to say end of April is going to be out on stars. But I, I make up shit and I just say it. Oh, so that's cool. I, I don't know if, if you can hold me to that legally. So everybody go watch stars for April. Go sign yeah. up for stars for April. Yeah. Right. Over the top. 109,000 fans all of a sudden signed up for stars that day. CM Punk has a, a part. I just watched too. him wrestle. Yeah. 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 Oh, he was actually yeah. he was there when you were shooting. He was there. Yeah. Well, I get front row seats. You kidding me? Oh, well, you're <laughs> to watch awesome. all the wrestlers. I, I was with CM Punk uh, at Wrigley Field for uh, Woody's. Uh, what was it? Wiffle ball classic. Kerry Wood had a thing one, one year only. It was the best time ever, but all these celebrities and corporate people came and there was a field of dreams. There was a Yankee stadium. There was Comiskey and there was Wrigley field set up in Wrigley field. And uh, we got to play wiffle ball all day long and drink free in Wrigley. And (laughs) my favorite part of that was behind home plate at Wrigley. I mean, behind, uh, the coaches area in the dugout at the old Wrigley field before they redid it. Um, there's a urinal. There's like, <laughs> there's a little peek of a, there's a urinal. You're right behind the coach and an ashtray. So like anytime during the game, you could just kind of go back and uh, have a cigarette and, uh, you know, it take a leak so out. I left it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a great some of the things you don't get to see from the field. Oh, man. All right, man crush. What did you bring for the hot products round? Oh, I, I didn't have wrestling. I should have been looking for that. But I, uh, let's go uh, March 17th, 1977. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I was looking th- I was looking through newspapers.com again. They are one of our sponsors. So uh, and their site is great. If you guys want to go back, you want to do the same thing as us. Go and check out newspapers.com. You can dig back to like the 1800s or even further. It's It's got everything you need on there. But uh, I was digging through. I'm looking for a hot product. And I came across a Macy's ad. Uh, there was actually on February 27th, 1977. And that ad, it was uh, for a thing that Macy's had going on. It was called the show and sale. And pretty much what that was, it was a sale about their electronics equipment. But to get people in the door, they set up what Macy's called the new product center, uh, where they would be showing off some like new products that were coming out. And one of the products that they were demonstrating in this new product center was an Atari product that I had never seen. And this product was so 1977 that I had to find it. So lo and behold, two weeks later, I find an ad 
in uh, Tucson, Arizona, March 17, 1977. I found this ad at an electronic store called Rose. And they were selling this amazing product for $199.99, which is around $863 in 2021. Now, I'm not sure how much you guys know about like Atari in the 70s, but there were, there's lots of stories floating around about how much blow went down in the office, shrooms, LSD, basically anything that they get their hands on that would give them like a creative edge. So, I mean, by all accounts, Atari sound like a wild, awesome place to work in the 70s. But that being said, this product right here makes a ton of sense. This product was called the Atari Video Music. Not even Video Music Box. It was just Atari Video Music. This beast, it was a stereo component that you plugged in in between your preferred audio device, like your 8-track or your record player, whatever you're using back in 1977. And the other end was plugged into this television. And once it was plugged in, you can put the needle down on your new Pink Floyd Animals record, which also came out in 1977, sit in your yellow egg chair, and watch the music create a kaleidoscope of random colors and patterns on your television. And all those images, they were determined by the, the mellowness and the intensity of the music waves that were coming from the Atari video music box. I mean... If there's one, I sent this to Mike Ranger immediately. I was like, dude, you know about this? So I would not be shocked if I show up like to the uh, the studio next week and we have one of these on top of the television. But yeah, $199. You can pick up an Atari music box. Oh, I've seen one of these demonstrated before and shut up and take my money, man. Those things are just yeah, it, incredible. <laughs> it's, I mean, now it's so simple. You know, you can right. do it, you know, with your computer, or whatever. Right. You, it, your computer comes with it now. Right. Yeah. Uh, your phone. And, and Apple tunes and whatnot and your phone. But yeah, no, no, that's exciting stuff. And, you know, 1977, those Atari guys were, were thinking with the same type of mind that the people at Saturday Night Live were thinking about, about the same time. <laughs> you know, we, we have to use as much mind expanding stuff to come up with the comedy. And these guys were thinking about, you know, how can we come up with better gizmos and games? I, I, I think it's just like minds. That's, that's some impressive stuff. Uh, I got to penalize you just for mentioning March 17th and trying to get back to this St. Patrick's Day Irish thing. And <laughs> then, then all of a sudden admitting it's a February date and March 17th had nothing to do with it. Uh, oh, no, no, no. The February, I just had to throw that out there as to why I found it. Because otherwise oh, I wouldn't okay. have found that. If I didn't find okay. that ad from Macy's. Yeah. I would have never found this product. It would at just all. be about the kickbacks from newspapers.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. You uh, gotta throw the you gotta throw the sponsors a bone every once in a while. Newspapers.com. Do you, do you see like on Facebook and different things where people are like, hey, you remember chalk? <laughs> <laughs> people post stuff like, do you have no memory whatsoever? Hey, you remember glasses? Why? <laughs> do you remember that shit? God, that was that was crazy. Those Atari guys all fried their brains. So this, these are just genuine questions. Do you remember Chuck? He's like, vaguely. Wait, what? They, they do make me feel good about all the things I remember. Um, most of them before 1977. You should before. you should join our Facebook group then. We have, I'll plug this right here. Go to facebook.com, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Join the other 73,000 people that follow that and then join our private group. That's another 14,000 people where we share pictures of chalk. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> and they're, they're all going to be watching heels on stars. Yes. They better tell be. them that. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Well, that, uh, that was a good one. It was, it's no WrestleMania. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joe Finley. What did you bring for the hot products round? 
All right. Well, hopefully I can top these ones. Uh, very strangely, I'm going to bring you to the Oscar Awards of March 24th, 1997. One of the only times that I can think of that a product was launched at that event. It was the product launch party for the U.S. launch of the Digital Versatile Disc, or the DVD. Uh, some people think, hey, isn't the V video? Well, it was originally digital video disc, but all of the computer companies came out and said, hey, it does stuff for us, too. So they had to change the name to Versatile to say that it does more than just video. Amongst the first of the class of 15 of DVDs launched in the United States were Twister, which was believed to be the very first one released, uh, A Time to Kill, Blade Runner, Goodfellas, Road Warrior 7, The Fugitive, The Mask, uh, Wizard of Oz, and Unforgiven. And the sales of DVDs took off right away because they did something that VHS failed to do. VHS machines were incredibly expensive, you know, upwards of $1,200, you know, back then. Uh, at launch, uh, DVD players, at least some companies were keeping them under $200 at the time of launch to get people on these. It was actually as a kid, it was one of the first major purchases I ever made was a DVD player. And my very first DVD Godzilla 2000, cause it was the cheapest DVD I could find. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they kept the prices of the DVDs themselves down to uh, between $20 and $30. Again, VHS, you know, if you wanted to own a copy, you were probably looking at $100 at the beginning. It was an expensive thing. Uh, so they really did a good job of keeping the prices down, and it became a giant format change. And what's crazy about the DVD is even though Blu-ray has been out for as long as it has been, and 4K Blu-ray and all these other things, the DVD is still out there. Every new movie still comes out on DVD, and that's something, you know, VHS didn't didn't last as long as wide. Like you could still find the odd one that was still releasing on VHS, but not like today with DVDs. It had been originally released in Japan, in November of 1996, but they weren't re using them for movies. They were actually using them for music videos. Uh, it wasn't until they came out in the U S that they started becoming a feature film staple and they became a staple really fast. So March 24th at the Oscars launching the DVD. Well, that's pretty good. And that's educational, but what that is, uh, you know, I, I was good friends with Kenny Campbell, who was on Herman's head back in the day. And uh, he, uh, he invested all of his Herman heads, Herman's head money into video discs, if you remember those. Yeah. And uh, that didn't really take off. And I don't know where he keeps his video disc player or his disc collection at this point. But I remember my first DVD and it was cheap. Uh, I, I think I got it at a, a white hen pantry. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to just go out of bounds and, and, and thank the DVD also for making us not have to be kind and rewind anymore. And secondly, I want to thank Joe for just throwing out versatile in there. Because I feel like I'm going to win some money off of that someday, just knowing that information, because I'm going to remember that. So I'm going to give the 10 points to Joe just for making that versatile rather than video, because I would have never guessed. All right, Joe, you win that game. We are in a three-way tie heading into our first two-point round, and you have control of the board. It's going to get crazy. <laughs> this last round is going to be a bloodbath. Uh, let's go with music. I know it's really doesn't really matter. They're both two points, but let's we're going to go music. I always make it seem like a harder decision than it really is. Uh, all right. So I'm going to take you to March 9th and on a day where rapper Nas said rap almost died. Uh, March 9th, uh, the 
the notorious B.I.G., was murdered in Los Angeles after leaving an after-party for the Soul Train Music Awards. Uh, the awards were shut down early by the fire department, and everybody had to leave, and he was shot four times on the street and killed. Uh, a later autopsy said that the, it was the fourth and final shot that was the only fatal one. Uh, lots of mystery surrounding this death. Uh, there were theories about... Uh, and allegations about uh, revenge for the murder of Tupac Shakur. Uh, also, he was it was he was alleged to be involved in that. So again, all alleged, 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 legal, legal, legal. Um, uh, and then there was another suspect that was be, being investigated, but he himself got killed in a drive-by while the investigation was underway. So no charges were ever filed for this murder. Uh, there was a very lengthy and one of the longest ever lawsuits by. Uh, if the family of, or the estate of a celebrity uh, in his death, uh, his wife and mother sued the LAPD uh, and nothing came of that. It got thrown out. And uh, shortly thereafter, March 25th, his second album, which this blew my mind, actually. I didn't realize that was his only his second album coming out yeah. uh, after his death. And the movie and the album was called Life After Death. Right. So really Oof. 16 days after his death. Uh, so yeah, the notorious B.I.G. and the great rap wars of those two, the Tupac and Biggie deaths, and as Nas said, nearly the death of rap in March 9th, 1997. Wow. I still remember that. I was on spring break when that happened. Yeah. Oh, I remember. I remember definitely. waking up. We saw it on the news. Yep. Hung over. Yeah, I remember. Nas missed an opportunity there. He could have been the Don McLean of his era. You know? <laughs> the day that music died, he could have done a seven-minute song that was a karaoke no-no from then on. But maybe <laughs> Nas didn't have the memory. Puffy did it instead. Right? Oh, my there God. You go. There you go. But thanks for keeping it dark there, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> right with it. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so let's go to March 8th of 1977. And even though I've <laughs> I called this band the Nickelback of the 80s before, I do hold a <laughs> special place in my heart for them. Uh, they played a show for us Marines at 29 Palms back in 2006. And I still recall it was supposed to be Leonard Skinner playing. And everyone was super stoked because nobody ever played in 29 Palms. I think the biggest concert prior was like the Lieutenant Dan Band with Gary Sinise or some shit like that. <laughs> right. So then, like, two days before this concert, the lead singer of uh, Skinner, he needed to get, like, an emergency operation, so they had to cancel. And everyone was everyone was bummed, because this was, like, the talk of... Because 29 Palms is an hour inland from the desert. There ain't shit out there. So anything that happens on that base is a big deal. These guys came in at the last minute, two days before the event. This band, they signed on. They literally saved the day. I mean, have they not played this one, they probably would have had us listening to, like, the Marine Corps marching band or some shit like that. That's what they do. But Drunk Marines everywhere, we were going apeshit for these guys. It was quite the show. But anyways, this band, this is their debut album. The album would peak at number four on the Billboard 200, which is pretty awesome for a debut. It was also certified five times platinum, catapulted this band to selling over 50 million albums in their career, including their first five albums going at least five times platinum. Uh, the album had featured three singles. And uh, all three of these singles, they made it into the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100, including Long, Long Way From Home, which peaked at number 20, Feels Like the First Time, which peaked at number four, and Cold as Ice, which peaked at number six. So I give you the men that saved the day 15 years ago for the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center. It's Foreigner with their debut album, Foreigner. Wow. Where did they come up with this stuff? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's great. 
I think that those Marines were all saved by some fuzzy foreigner. <laughs> we're so everybody odd. was trashed. I, I could I don't remember everything. I don't remember how their performance was, but I remember it was really fun. And, and so. who did the song Twenty Nine Palms? There was a song named Twenty Nine Palms. Oh, was it? it? Must be like a really like depressing song because that whole place <laughs> is pretty depressing. It's like Sting or somebody. Sting solo stuff. It, it, it might be. That's actually it sounded like Sting when you were singing it. Robert Plant. Oh, Robert Plant. Okay, all right, cool. It is Robert Plant. Yeah, right? I just I just googled it while we were while we were going. Well, that's cheating, and you're disqualified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. It's Robert Plant. It's a, he's like Sting, except he doesn't last as long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, for my music pick, we'll go over to a few excerpts from a great review out of the record from Hackensack, New Jersey, March 17th, 1987, by staff writer Barbara Yeager. The difference between a good band and a great band is that a great band ventures into new artistic territory, seeing their success as a challenge rather than a reward. U2 is a great band. The Irish group's new album, The Joshua Tree, blends the Spartan sounds of the unforgettable fire with the explosiveness of earlier work. It also finds the four band members exploring blues and country for the very first time. The Joshua Tree, released yesterday, finds the band dealing with equality and the crises of faith, relationships, and repressive governments, but no song preaches an easy answer. The Joshua Tree is easily the best rock album since Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, and it shows that U2 is poised to carry the mantle into the next decade. So let's look at this album from U2 by the numbers. Joshua Tree hit number one in more than 20 countries, spawned two smash hit singles, and yielded a successful tour that drew three million attendees. It's the band's fifth studio album, and the first album ever to be released on cassette, CD, and vinyl at the same time. The Joshua Tree became the first million-selling CD in the United States, and it became the group's first number one album on its way to becoming Diamond Certified. The album spawned their first chart-topping singles, With or Without You and I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, both hitting the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100. The Joshua Tree then netted you to another two huge firsts, of course, their first two Grammy wins. So it's one of the greatest rock albums of all time. It's U2's The Joshua Tree, March 1987. Coincidentally, when I was stationed at 29 Palms, I lived in Joshua Tree. In Joshua Tree. Coincidentally, the album cover for Joshua Tree was not shot in Joshua Tree. It was actually shot 200 miles away in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Ah, oh, scum. Wow. <laughs> I was going to give you the win until you pointed that out. I think I'll still give you the win because you, you found a way to integrate the Irish into the scenario without having to mention St. Patrick's Day, you know, for no reason whatsoever. You two guys are Irish. And, uh, of course, the fact that Joshua Tree is adjacent to 29 pounds just kind of made me laugh. Like, well, boy, he's just sticking it to you there, man. <laughs> you know, actually, since we're talking about this, uh, well, Mark's a huge, even though he's wearing a Led Zeppelin shirt, he's a huge Grateful Dead fan. Huge. Oh, yeah. And I heard you tell this story like, a couple of years ago. Can you tell Mark that story? It's a great story. It's really long. 
Uh, <laughs> how long is this trip? I, I want to tell the U2 story real quick. Oh, I'll go for you, it. The go other one it. later. But uh, so I'm going to, to see U2. It was the Zootopia tour with Bobcat Goldthwait, who I've been good friends with since one crazy summer. And we're driving and it's just horrible traffic, but it's out in Anaheim, big A. And uh, we finally get there. It took us like an hour and a half to get there. And we get to uh, a parking place and we get out and this guy is like, hey, Bobcat, I love you, man. You're my favorite. Bobcat, hey, let me, where are you guys going? Oh, you're, you're an R. You're on the whole wrong side. Get in the rig. I'll drive you around. So he, we get in this guy's semi-rig and drive all the way around the big A from R to S. He didn't realize that S was here and instead drove us all the way around, which took about 45 minutes. And uh, so we get, we we get to 75 feet to our right and uh the guy's like oh my bad my bad um follow me i know a great way in you don't have to go through security or anything just no come on and like no buddy you've been more than a lot of fun already and uh there's on the side of the anaheim there was like a submarine hatch and you know various signs saying high voltage don't enter and uh he opens this metal door on the side of the building and we, we go in and we're ducking the whole way and we get through and the guy's like, there you go. You're in. All right. Nice meeting you. Take care Bobcat. You rock. And we, we get out and we're in this hallway and we look around and there's Bono talking to Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp. And we've just walked out of a hole in the wall, literally. And uh, Bono goes, Oh, hey, hey, what? Um, Bobcat, you know, when I and uh, Johnny, uh, Bobcat, you know, you, you've been doing me in your act. You should, uh, you should really use the real glasses. And he, he hands Bobcat his glasses. He's like, well, well, I gotta, I gotta go do a show. Uh, enjoy, everybody. All right. And they walk away, and Winona and Johnny Depp look at us like. You fucks, and uh, they walk the other way. And I look at Bobcat, I'm like, Bobcat, you've got Bono's glasses, let's go now. We beat the traffic, it ain't gonna get any better than this, man. But we did stick around, it was a great show. Uh, oh my god, wow. how did you get to your seats from the back? Was security like who probably the long way? Yeah, it was like, why are you leaving there? You were backstage. Well, we got seats down there. Uh, sorry. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was pretty weird. Anyway. Great. All right, well, if the Grateful Dead comes up, I'll tell that story. But, you know, right now I just got to play by the rules. This might be the one episode where it doesn't come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. All right, well, uh, like I said, uh, I, I got to give him that uh, on the YouTube uh points 20 points there 20 right. 20 points well i had the nickel back in the 80s so all right so we're going into the <laughs> final round and i have control of the board and the lead so we'll go to the tv round to wrap this one up so for my television selection let's go to the pages of the detroit free press march 27 1987 for an article by mike duffy burt young isn't wild about talking to reporters makes him nervous so Young, the gruff, street-toughened character actor, best known for his performances as Pauly in Sylvester Stallone's Rocky, dealt with interview anxiety by waking up late last Sunday morning and stumbling in 20 minutes after an NBC press conference for the new sitcom Roomies had begun in New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. In interviews, I feel too close to being a salesman, Young said, as he loosened up a bit. 
I'm not that. I'm not glib. And that's why I'd rather be in bed, he said. Or maybe it's just that because Young realizes that Roomies, which makes its regular premiere at 8 o'clock tonight, Channel 4 in Detroit, is a total lemon. Young plays a middle-aged ex-Marine who winds up the college roommate of a brainy young 16-year-old played by new teen heartthrob, Corey Haim. Haim said that Young has always been one of his favorite idols, or at least since he saw the first Rocky. And uh, Young affectionately referred to his roomie's co-star as this pineapple. As for Stallone, Young calls Sly the kid. And the Rocky experience, he said, eh, I was able to build another room on my Beverly Hills house. So, roomies, it ran from March 1987 all the way until May of 1987. A whole eight episodes. So that's my pick for the TV round. Roomies with Burt Young and Corey Haim. Classic. Wow. Nice. <laughs> I, I missed that one altogether. I never, I never saw that. I believe the first reviews were yawnies, they called it. <laughs> it didn't work out. It's ironic that Corey Haim couldn't give Burt Young something that would make him you know, wide awake in the morning or <laughs> wide awake at four in the morning or wide awake at seven in the morning. But yeah, uh, yeah I missed that one. Why do you keep going to the Detroit Free Press? Is there a DetroitFreePress.com, like newspapers.com that you can go to? No, it just happens to be all the articles I found happen to be in the Detroit Free Press. Okay. All right. Interesting. Thanks. <laughs> all right, Joe Finley, what did you bring? Oh, well, I've got something interesting. I will point out, though, I actually very, very briefly met Corey Haim in, about two, in 2006 at the TV station I was working at. I bumped, I like literally bumped into him outside because he was smoking immediately outside a door. <laughs> and just and was just like, hey, it was like, Corey Haim. <laughs> he just, oh, hi. And then just, that was the end of <laughs> his, his glazed look at me made me realize that that was the end of that conversation. Uh, but I bring to you from... March 10th, 1997, a TV show that was based on a movie created by the man who wrote the movie and was dissatisfied by the way they took a dark movie with an empowered female lead and turned it into a kind of silly thing. Uh, So he decided years later to pitch a TV show version and... March 10th was the debut of Buffy the Vampire Slayer on the WB. Uh, The show ran for seven seasons, uh, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar. That was actually her breakout year, because it was later that year that she released I Know You Did Last Summer. And then towards the end of the year, she had an appearance in Scream 2. Uh, Allison Hannigan, who, you know, from child actress all the way up to How I Met Your Mother and all these other things. Uh, David Boreanaz, it was his first major role. He had had a couple of roles, you know, without even people with names, minus, you know, just little one-offs on TV and things like that. Also another one from Michelle Trachtenberg and Eliza Dushku. Seth Green was in this. Lots of appearances throughout the uh, history. Nathan Fillion made an appearance in the show. Uh, But yeah, Joss Whedon had written the original movie and he decided to pitch this and create this. He ended up writing about 137 of the episodes. Yeah, it was a, a gigantic hit and it was a and it's still a cult classic streaming everywhere as of today. And so, yeah, I give you that Buffy the Vampire Slayer debuted March 10th, 1997. All right. Uh, and who's your favorite Buffy of all time? I saw the original movie and it was fine. It was it was a weird one, and usually I get weirded out when Paul Rubens appears in something and he's not peeing. <laughs> I love Paul Rubens, and I'm like, Paul Rubens, what are you doing here? 
what are you doing to me right now? And that, that one was particularly weird. Uh, Mystery Men, I loved him in that, but that one was a weird one. Uh, this one, I... I've seen a lot of episodes because I used to broadcast it at at my TV station again. But uh, I my wife is actually watching it right now with my son, and I see it all the time. To- I see it all the time, uh, and it's like I you totally got like cameras see- mounted that you can spy on, or you just know constantly. Oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is, uh, yeah, it's fun watching him see it for the first time, and it's it's a fun show. I, I it's something I didn't get into at the time, but I definitely get the appeal, and I see why everybody was into it. I still get yelled at for having not watched it when it originally came out. <laughs> I used to hang out a bit with uh, Christy Swanson with a K, uh, mm-hmm. who was the movie version uh, yeah. at golf tournaments and whatnot. But uh, yeah. I, I haven't been hanging out with her so much. Uh, <laughs> she she got she got out of stupid uh, blue California because she couldn't handle the people anymore, and she went to New Jersey. She found out that there's a lot of blue voters in New Jersey too. <laughs> she didn't know that. Oh, uh, before she moved, but uh, she's she's fun to follow on Twitter. Uh, she's, <laughs> yeah, she's and everything's a question. I just <laughs> you, you have to tune into that. I won't say anymore. Uh, yeah, all right, Buffy. There you go. All right, man crush. What did you bring for the television round? All right, so let's go March fourteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. I actually I was stunned to find a show that debuted in March here. But now that you guys both had shows that debuted in March, I didn't think there would be anything. But hey, there is. But this particular series, it was a, an adaptation from a British series or British sitcom, rather. It was slated to get a fall 1976 release. They were going to put the pilot up. But at the last minute, ABC pulled this one. They decided it wasn't good enough to get the release. And they felt there were more deserving shows for that time slot. So while the show was being shelved by ABC... CBS tried to swoop in and pick it up mid-season, and they promised that they would release it in February of 1977. But just like that high school kid that doesn't like his ex-girlfriend until she meets and or like hooks up with another dude, ABC jumped back in and they agreed to air the show in March with a whole new cast. So when it was all said and done, the sitcom it would last for eight seasons, 172 episodes, and was a ratings dynamo. Uh, in the first full season. From 1977 to 1978, it was the third highest rated show on television, followed by the second highest rated show in television. And it, it stayed that way all the way to season five. And that was mainly because there was a contract dispute that resulted in one of the stars. They didn't leave that year, but she missed a lot of the episodes for, you know, they try to keep her out of it. Uh, but then they after she left, they rebounded. They went back to fourth the following year. But honestly, like ABC got extremely lucky on this account. Not only did they want to shelve the series completely, they almost lost to CBS, but they also lost Suzanne Summers due to a contract dispute. Then on top of that, they weren't even going to initially use John Ritter because they felt that he made Jack Tripper look too goofy. And then like, also let's not dismiss the fact that they erroneously, this was one of my uh, previous picks from like, I don't know, maybe six, seven months ago, the Ropers, they spun the Ropers off took them off the show although like mr furley was great i love mr furley as well but they took them off the show too but this is still a hit i give you the debut of the hit sitcom series three's company fantastic show you know what do you just drop the mic on that one come on great don ritter the nicest man in hollywood if he were still alive Uh, um man just the greatest guy ever uh yeah the whole the drama, the intrigue that was Suzanne Summers. I actually cracked here. I had a, a signed copy 
of uh, Suzanne Summers' book up there somewhere. But uh, I uh, I did a her talk show years ago. She had briefly had a talk show yep. I was on. Uh, I, I keep the signed copies. The rest of them. Did I you ever try the Thighmaster? Um, no, but I I've, I've I mean I've never purchased one. I have tried. I'm sure, everybody's tried. One. But have you ever really stuck with it and seen the results? No. <laughs> my my mom purchased one and we had it in the house. It was my mom would buy like exercise equipment and go on diets and shit all the time. So we had all this random shit from like home shopping club. So we had one of those in the house and I used to actually use it on my biceps. Yeah. Felt like it was a better workout. You could do uh, bust exercises too. And I, I had like a D cup at one point. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was quite a show. And you know, he would pass himself off as gay for Mr. Roper, which was was just classic sitcom. It's a situation that the comedy comes out of. And that's that's <laughs> that's the definition of it. You know, uh, it's, you know, you can't really give the the prize to Yawnies. And then there's other Buffy's and that was stolen. This is original content that various networks didn't want. I think you got to give it to uh, Free's company. Gosh, darn it. And the three of you are tied up again, except one of you isn't. That's me. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave. And, uh... I'm sorry, Joe. You had... <laughs> Go take care of your kids. You put Don't it out there that, that you, you had shit to do. Uh, <laughs> it's like a subplot for Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, anyway. All right, Man Crush. That means me and you are tied up, so we're going to go to the final wild card round. Uh, you know what? I'll go first on this one. I'll keep it brief here. Uh, my wild card selection, I actually selected a hot product. Uh, released March 1987, I gave you one of my absolute favorite games for the Nintendo Entertainment System, Pro Wrestling. Uh, this was just a staple of my youth. Uh, players could choose from a roster of six wrestlers. You had Fighter Hayabusa, Giant Panther, King Corn Karn, King Slender, Starman, and the Amazon. Computer Gaming World named it as the best sports game of 1988 for Nintendo. The game was hailed for its realistic graphics and non-stop wrestling action. Uh, and of course, who can forget the game's victory message, a winner is you. And I mean, that became one of the first internet memes. So I give you pro wrestling, probably one of the games for the Nintendo Entertainment System that I sunk the most time into. You don't say. All right, Man Crush. What do you have for the wild card? I'll make mine super quick. Uh, I was shocked that I had a debut of a TV show before, and I was shocked that you guys had debuts in March. I got another debut in March, so I might as well just drop that one too. March 15th, 1977, we got the debut of the classic sitcom Eight is Enough. Wow. And this would last for five seasons on ABC. I couldn't go with this over Three's Company, but I figured I'd uh, I'd keep it around. Well, that was brief. Yeah. <laughs> I only remember one thing about Eight is Enough. I think about it every Christmas. I remember there was a Christmas episode where all the kids came down, had to, wanted to open the presents, and the parents are like, no, we can't open the presents until we all drink orange juice first. That's what we do every Christmas. And I'm like, that's the stupidest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> well, there's eight of them, so you had to get the vitamins into them early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. So you have a knife. And there was about a 20-year spread between the oldest and the youngest. And yeah. That mom, she was pregnant a long time. And where is 
where is Dick Van Patten getting any uh, you know, six, seven kids in there? How is he, you know, ripping off some romance in a house with seven kids in already? A small house. Uh, I was going to just completely outlaw Mark for bringing up wrestling again. It was a, you know, just a, a ploy to get me to pitch heels. That's going to be on the stars network, maybe in late April. Uh, but and some of the worst wrestlers ever, by the way, on that game. I mean, no Superfly Snooker, you know, nobody. Georgie Animal Steel, just fake as could be. But eight is enough. Screw you. Eight is enough. I'm the ninth child in my family. And number nine. You can see me at Joel Murray, nine of nine, at Instagram and Twitter, Joel Murray, nine of nine, because I'm the ninth. And eight is not enough. It never will be. That could be a new sitcom. That could be another yeah. one. I mean, come on. So, Mark, the winner is you. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Since Mark won, can you tell him the Grateful Dead story? Oh, if we got time. Oh, I mean, if you got time, <laughs> we got all, we could stay here forever. Okay. Well, it's a long story, but again, you can get it on the, the Chive did an animated version. You can go on and Google it and say, Bill Murray's brother, Bill Murray takes his brother to the Grateful Dead. Uh, and you can see the animated version, which interesting that I animated but um so I was a big deadhead I saw the, the, the band 26 times live all with Jerry I never have seen him since uh I'm just kind of pure that way uh I also saw Skinner the last show before uh the, plane, the helicopter the plane crash plane crash yeah. plane crash um but uh so I know the dead is coming to Madison Square Garden and I'm going to visit my brothers and at this point I have four brothers in Manhattan uh Billy's there, Brian's there, and uh, Andy and John are both working in bars and restaurants. And um, Billy knows I'm dying to see the band. And, uh, you know, he's, I've seen, he's got Jerry's phone number in his phone book. You know, he, they, they've been on the show twice on Saturday Night Live. And uh, so I get a call at about seven o'clock. It's getting dark. And, uh, oh, hey, yeah, it's Bill. Um, you want you want to take a walk? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, let's take a walk. Let's take a walk now. Sure, yeah. Uh, and I just want to you know get there. Uh, all right. Well, why don't you meet me at like 98th and uh, Lexington, and we'll take a walk. And uh, so <clears throat> he he lived there at 96th, and uh, my other brothers had a place at 95th. And so I, I run out the door, and I've got a Grateful Dead T-shirt nondescriptly with another shirt over it, and uh, meet him on the corner, like, hey, hey, uh, let's uh, get a cab, huh? Uh, no, let's walk a bit. And uh, we're walking along, and he's taking his time, and uh, he's looking, you know, hey, uh, look up there. Look at, look at the cornice on that building. Think about it. You know, craftsmen spent time. To, to do all that work. And people walk by here all day long. I mean, think about how many people walk by here and don't even look up. And, but look at the work. Look how beautiful that is. Yeah, it's great, though. Let's go. Let's, you know, let's go. Um, and so we're, we're walking. And we're, whatever, in the 70s. And uh, are you a little hungry? I'm getting a little peckish. You want to stop and get something? <laughs> yeah, can we get something to go? Or, I mean, since you try, uh, all right. And so we sit down and we, we got some sushi and he's doing this whole thing where you pour the other guy's sushi and I, I'm pour the other guy's sake and you, you can't rush it. You can't. So I, I just keep pouring his fuller and fuller and uh, we eat the sushi and uh, the waitress comes like, can, can I get you anything else? And, you know, that was really great. Um, could we do all that again? 
and I, I'm just getting more and more furious. And uh, uh, okay, and uh, so we, we're walking, and we're in the fifties, and we're, we're walking, and he he's like, you know, you know, this uh, guy James McMahon lived in that building. Yeah, when I first moved here, he lived in that building. That was an empty loft. I'm like, I don't care. Let's, you know, and he's telling me stories about stuff that doesn't make any sense. And I, I'm never, I'm just furious at this point. And as we're getting closer and closer to 33rd, where Madison Square Garden is, all of a sudden you see like deadheads that, you know, they're selling t-shirts that didn't get into the show. And like, well, I was looking for a miracle, but nothing. I know, but I sold some shirts, and they're, and they're just kind of traipsing by. And we walk by Madison Square Garden, and it's it's over there. And I'm now I'm just fucking furious. And I, 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 yeah, yeah, okay. And, and backstage you could probably be backstage with Belushi and watching me. Yeah, yeah, that would suck. Yeah, that would be horrible. And we just keep walking. And uh, would you like some dessert or something? I could go. Would you like? Some? This place has got really good ice cream. And I, now I'm just like, I don't care. Sure, yeah, cover me ice cream. Just kill me. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> and we, we have some ice cream. And then we, we keep going. And we're, we're down south of Houston. We're, we're down in, in the village. And we keep going. And all of a sudden, I realize we're going to the old blues bar, which I've been to before, which to most people would be the coolest thing in the world. You're going to Blue Sheen Aykroyd's Bar with the, right. the world's greatest jukebox. And... uh we walk in and uh, Danny Aykroyd's there. Goes, ah, Joel, fabulous. Ah, we got a bartender. Great, great, great. Uh, Bill, uh, you, you relax. You take your time, Joel. Uh, I need lemons. I need limes. I need everything cut up. And because we, we got people coming. And oh, this is oh, fabulous. We got a bartender. And uh, so I'm cutting lemons and limes. And, you know, the walk took like four and a half, five hours to walk the Lake the Manhattan kind of thing because we kept stopping. And uh, we're there and I'm, I'm cutting limes. And all of a sudden I look up. Bob Weir sits down across the bar from oh, me. It's just started filling in, right? Well, hey, 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 can I maybe get like a gin and tonic? And uh, so I, I get Bob Weir a gin and tonic. I'm like, this is fabulous. And, and Mickey Hart walks in, and Kreutzmann walks in. Everybody walks in except for Jerry. This is the only time I saw the Grateful Dead without Jerry. Uh, but uh, so. As the night goes on, I'm making I'm making drinks for the Grateful Dead. I'm talking about shows I saw at Alpine Valley, and you know, oh, yeah. talking about this. And uh, eventually, they get up and they play with Peter Aykroyd on guitar, yep. Aykroyd on harmonica, Belushi uh, singing back up to my brother Billy doing Louie Louie. And I'm thinking, if I had a camera, if it was the future, my phone, I could take a picture. <laughs> of these guys like seven feet away from me playing for like two and a half hours. And it was absolutely insane how good it was. Wow. And uh, so now it's like five 30 in the morning and uh, Danny Eckert uh, starts up a Harley in the corner of the room. And uh, yeah, it might be time to go. Yeah. That could be a sign everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's time to get the fuck out. And uh, the cloud is just like rising up and you can literally see the smoke from the exhaust coming up and Bill is like, Oh, we should probably get going, huh? Hey, um, you seemed a little miffed earlier. Is everything okay? Like, yeah, everything's fine. Oh, good, good. Want to take a walk? And we walked out into the daylight and uh, walked out. And that's, oh, that's that story. So that's amazing. fantastic, uh, yeah. man. I thought you would appreciate that story. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah. I'm sorry for having to put you through that one. No, that's, oh, dude, that's a brilliant story. I'm, it's so I'm glad amazing. I got the U2 one in. <laughs>
<laughs> hey, I got some. I have some listener questions. If you have oh, time, really? you wanna you wanna answer these, or you don't have to. You're you're sending me that bobblehead, though, right? I will. I'll yeah. Okay. Tonight, it's Wolverine. You want that. Wolverine? Right, right. All right. So, uh, <laughs> Tommy Combs, he wants to know uh, how's it being part of the Disney Pixar experience. Oh, that's the best gig in the world. I was uh, I was Don Carlson, a mature student in uh, Monsters University, and uh, uh, it's one. Of, it's like the mafia. You 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 can't audition. They just give you the role and they call you up and say, we want, you're going to play this role. And like, yes, you are correct. I am. And um, <laughs> it's, it's the greatest gig. And uh, you like go up to San Francisco and you do a whole like four hour uh, thing. And, you know, you do all the lines and then they would get me up to a certain vocal level. And then I do all the lines again in a higher pitch <clears throat> and then they do all the, the yelling and impacts and all the hard stuff at the very end. And then they'd set you on your way. But beforehand, they're like, well, you're, you're going to come up to San Francisco. We're going to fly you up. Uh, where would you like to stay? Like, my pick? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, um, I've always wanted to stay, uh, I don't know, right underneath the top of the mark. At the mark, you know, okay. Uh and then the next time I'd come up, I'm like, I always want one of those bay to bay rooms at the Mondrian. But I stayed at the cliff. I stayed at like, but I went up four or five different times to do this. And one time we actually drove up with my kids in uh, my, my red van, my maroon Westphalia. And uh, that was a funny thing. But right before we're leaving, we're getting in. It's the one of the last rides we took in this van. I told my kid, I go, uh, you know what? Go up above the TV. There's uh, these cases. They're, they're light blue cases. Uh, grab both of those. And uh, he's like, what are these? Like, those are cassette tapes. Uh, <laughs> and we listened to all these pre-made uh, party tapes that I had made over the years that, you know, like went in and out of National Lampoon Radio Hour and, and live songs and, and, and goofy ass shit and uh, theme songs from television shows and whatnot. But uh, we had a great time listening to, to dad's tapes and we drove all the way up. And uh, I think, uh, I think that time we stayed at, at the Clift. But anyway, no, we stayed at the place with the Tonga room with the, where they have, <laughs> they, they, they have a, a whole water show where like a, a band comes out on a boat and it's called the Tonga room. It's a, it's up there. It's a big place. It's across the street from the Mark. Mark. It's not Mark Jackson, not Mark Davis, Mark, Mark Thompson. Across from the Mark Thompson Hotel. Anyway. All right. But uh, there's nothing better than working on a Pixar thing. There was probably 70 people in the thing, and I didn't work with any of them. Uh, the parties were really good. Um, I kind of know John Goodman, and I know Dave Foley from it. But uh, Billy Crystal, I met him like four times each time. Exciting and new. He had never met me before. <laughs> <laughs> who, are you, who are you again? All right, this one's uh, this is from John Kula. He said, "How amazing was it to be the voice of Chester Cheetah?" And can you say you were just a cool dude in a loose mood? Well, um, that's a, I got a story on that one too. But uh, I was going um, for the audition, and there was a callback, and uh, it was down to two guys, and it was Dan Castellaneta who was at the Second City, and I was just a newcomer in the touring company at the Second City. But I had my mom's car, and I never had a car. But I, I got to borrow mom's car because I had to be there for this callback. And uh, we went back in the room one more time. We read again. And uh, 
when I got done the second time, the guy goes, okay, so we're going to see you tomorrow. And I was like, and uh, so I, I walk out and I'm like, yeah, uh, Dan, you need a ride back? I, I, I got a car. I got a car. Yeah, I can give you a ride home. And we're in the car. And I, I remember telling uh, Danny that I think, I think I got it. I think they told me I got it tomorrow and I, I'm going to be here tomorrow. And uh, he's like, oh, well, that's all right. Because I, I got to go out to L.A. I'm, I'm doing this this thing on the Tracy Ullman show. And uh, that turned out to be the Simpsons. So I think he, he might've won in the long run, but for 11 years, I was a righteous kitty in the heart of hip city till I'd see those Cheetos. Then my comedies would surrender to my urge for the cheese. It goes crunch. It's not easy being cheesy. Yeah, that was good. Bought my, bought my first house basically. Uh, let's see. Brian Moreno says, uh, what was your experience working with John Cusack and Demi Moore on one of my favorite films? Uh, one crazy summer, such a good cast. Uh, any good behind the scenes stories? The weird thing on that one was, uh, I was going to play with, first of all, I, I was in, in improv in Chicago and I, uh, we started the improv Olympic and, uh, Del Close got me an agent. And he was the improv guru that taught Gilda and Aykroyd and Belushi and all these people. And he was in the original Second City back in the day. And uh, Dell got me an agent. And the first audition they sent me on was for this thing. And I got a call back and they called me back. And um, my agent goes, yeah, but the callback is in Hyannis, Massachusetts. And I'm like, is that normal? Uh, no, it's not. It's not normal, but uh, there's a, a ticket for you at the airport and uh, you're going to go to Hyannis for the callback. So I go to the airport and I meet Jeremy Piven, uh, who wow. was an established, you know, he was in Wildcats. He had been in movies. His, his chest was shaved because he was in a baseball movie trying to be a team, but uh, <laughs> any, not baseball, football movie. Football. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to audition to play John Cusack's best friend and Piven is John Cusack's best friend. So right. I'm thinking there's not a chance in the world I'm going to get this part. And uh, so we we read a couple times there. And uh, the director who was, I was 23. The director was 25, Savage Steve Holland, who's just the greatest guy, uh, said, all right, so uh, you're going to be the nice guy, uh, nice guy's friend, and he's going to be the bad guy's friend. So you're both, you're both here. And uh, we're going to... Uh, we're just going to hang out for a few days and then we're going to start shooting in about six. And uh, so uh, everybody just hang loose and have fun. Cause I want you all to become friends. And I go, I, I brought an overnight bag. <laughs> you're telling me, yeah, you're here for two months. And, uh, <laughs> oh my God. So I was there for two months. And the first person I met after that thing, cause Piven didn't really want to hang out with me after that or talk to me. Uh, I went back to the hotel in Hyannis and uh, I met Bobcat Goldthwait for the first time. And he was making like four foot Estes rockets and shooting them down the hotel uh, hallway out, out an open door. And uh, it was, I was like, I'm going to, I'm hanging with you first of all. And uh, so then we, we went to uh, meet Cusack and we went to his room and Bobcat right away, we walk in the room and he, and we had little regular hotel rooms, but Cusack had like a two-story loft kind of thing with a, he had a Jeep they rented for him. And he's only like 18, uh, 19 maybe. And uh, Bobcat spots, he's got an American Express card on the table. And Bobcat 
writes down the numbers on the American Express card <laughs> and gives me a copy while Cusack's getting changed. And it goes, yeah, just take that. Uh, so we we kept ordering like KTEL records the whole time we were making the movie and just like thigh masters and stuff like that. We just kept having them sent to Cusack's room. So uh, every time we get done with shooting for the day, uh, we walk in and Cusack goes, oh, didn't everybody get a package today? Because <laughs> I did. All right. Man Crush, we figured out a riddle that's been boggling our minds for years since we saw Cusack at that Comic-Con. We now know why he hates that movie so much because you got it's all these it's you got, did you guys order like a rascal rider to his room i we might have gotten that that uh, would have been I great got, i never saw all the things that bob ordered i just know what i got kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. that's fantastic let me all right let me lump this what? one and yeah, then good uh this guy all right so this is from mike ranger uh mike's on the show all the time he says uh how was Cookie after you two stopped playing all those games? Kim Foster was the most beautiful girl and uh, the coolest chick uh, a guy on his first movie could ever get to meet. And, you know, she was Nikki Six from Motley Crue's girlfriend uh, before that. And uh, she was just cool as shit. And um, she and I, well... Uh, I'm going to stop there, but um, <laughs> like like I said, Cusack was like 19, Piven was like 19, Bobcat and Demi were both AA already, uh, Matt Mulhern had his uh, wife with him, Curtis had his wife with him, so she was always like, Joel, will you go out drinking with me? Like, okay, I'll, I will, Kim, uh, I'll, I'll suck it up for the team, and uh we would go out and we'd go to these places and people like would look at me thinking, well, he must be some kind of chic or something. He must be some kind of multimillionaire because there's no way a guy that looks like that gets a, gets a girl like that. But uh, there's another story that's about 20 minutes long. We, we went back to the Kennedy compound one night, which is, was an absolutely hysterical night. It was one of the Shriver boys wanted Kim Foster to, to come with him. And she's like, Jill, just come with me. And, uh, I can't go into that story because it gets a little bit bad. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> oh, it was, man. It gets really, really good. Oh, Jesus. If you, if you see me in person, ask me that one. I, I will. Okay. All right, I, I will. I can't say that one. But she was the coolest. And uh, I improvised that line. And who wouldn't, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Danny Schneider, he said uh, he just wants to tell you that uh, God Bless America was better than falling down. Thank you, Danny. He's, you've got a point. You seem like a very sensitive, sensible guy, Danny. I hope you find your Kim Foster someday. <laughs> uh, this uh, this is from a guy named Chris Heist. He just wants to know uh, what was the name of the boat that took all the people to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I saw that question. <laughs> Fucking douche. That was uh, frightening. But the, the name <laughs> of the boat in uh, One Crazy Summer was the boat. Um, the SS Minnow, of course. I mean, in Chicago, you watched Gilligan's Island into um, Hogan's Heroes, the Dick Von Dyke show, like every night of your life. So uh, the fact that we wouldn't know the Minnow, that's just, you know, <laughs> Dick Donner should have known better. Oh, that's, why he, that's why he wasn't a comic, you know, holiday genius. Oh, uh, man. He's a real yeah. funny guy there. All right. Here's another one. Uh, who's the best golfer out of all your brothers? You and all that's, your brothers. That's why we play. Uh, it's different every day. Uh, really? Close? No, some, some are better. 
my brother Ed was always the best. Uh, he was a scratch golfer. Um, wow. But, uh, you know, Brian's getting a little older. Billy's getting a little older. Billy's a very good golfer, but he's had a million dollars more lessons than I have, I think. Uh, but uh, he and I are a good match. We, we have a good time. And Andy's pretty good. But my brother Johnny has always been definitely the worst because uh, he doesn't put the, the time in. He doesn't practice uh, whatever. But, I was just down in uh, St. Augustine uh, last week and I passed by the Caddyshack place. Uh, what's the, tell people where to go because I didn't even know that existed until I passed the sign and I knew you were coming on the show and I, I sent it to Mark yeah. and I was like, I didn't even know that they had a place. Yeah, we've had that one a long time. Yeah, it's like it was right there where we were. Of course, uh, I was with my wife and my daughter and they didn't want to stop there. They wanted to go They would have loved it. <sighs> Uh, she's 14 so well there's a putting green and there's there's you know unlimited soft drinks and, and <laughs> food oh there's good food uh murray brothers caddy shack it's off of was it 75 is the highway uh, uh 95 95 that's yeah. it i was off by 20 um but uh yeah my brother andy kind of runs that with his buddies and uh i'm an investor and we're all kind of figureheads and uh, we have a golf tournament down there <clears throat> That one is at the PGA Golf Hall of Fame in the World Golf Village, yep. and uh, it's on a nice rotunda there with a pond, and uh, it's uh, it's been very good. It's done well during COVID because it has a huge wraparound porch, so there's a lot of outdoor seating. Um, but then we've got another one uh, in Rosemont, which is right next to the Chicago O'Hare Airport. So when I'm flying out of Chicago, I'll, I'll go there like three, four hours early before my flight and just drink and eat uh, because I'm an investor uh, before my flight. And then we're going to open one on the, in our hometown in Wilmette, Illinois on the Skokie Wilmette border on Skokie Boulevard. There uh, is the new news that's coming, which I oh, awesome. Are you guys going to have like your own reality show, like Wahlburgers? Yeah, but we're not going to be in shape. <laughs> that's that'll be much more relatable. I think, I right. think people will like that better. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, we've worked together. We've done a few things, but, uh, no, I, no. I, I <laughs> right. don't see anybody wanting a reality show with cameras around, especially uh, after God bless America. Um, yeah, I, everybody else here is just saying that, you know, they like you, like your movies, no real questions. I'm looking oh. through this. Uh, well, I, I've been, um, I've been doing this, uh, who's live anyway. I can pitch that. We're going to get back to that in, in the summer. I guess people are saying, uh, but I travel around with Ryan Stiles and Greg Proops and Jeff Davis from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And nice. we travel around all the U.S. and Canada uh, doing live shows. And uh, it's been a, a, a blessing to be able to hang out with guys that like to drink as much as I do and uh, <laughs> like to perform and don't like to memorize lines. And uh, it's been it, it's been really great. I've performed now in all 50 states uh, and six, seven provinces in Canada. So uh, that that's kind of a, a weird thing, but <laughs> well, that's what, Joe's what, neck of the woods. Sure is. Oh, in Canada, here. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so I, sorry to not mention it earlier. I miss. Yeah, I would have been. Le I would have been less prejudiced against you. Um, <laughs> Usually, it works against me. Yeah. So. No, I love Canada. I love the Canadian lounge. Uh, you know, because we fly business, and you know, when you're having a Molson at eight in the morning, it's like, does it get any better than this? <laughs> Yeah, look at this. Uh, Dude, thank you so much for coming on. Unless you have anything else you want to plug, I don't want to keep you too long, but that was fun, man. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I got something else to plug. Yeah, uh, go for it. 
William Murray Golf. Uh, that's what I've been spending most of my time on. Uh, we have a clothing line, um, William Murray Golf. <coughs> Sorry, WilliamMurrayGolf.com. Uh, it's quality stuff. Most of it isn't plain blue, but it's got a, a zero F's given uh, logo of Bill on it. And uh, all the brothers are involved. And uh, it's comfortable. It breathes. And uh, the spring stuff just came out. It's really good. Some good looking stuff. Uh, it, a lot of it has to do with Murray legend and lore and stories that we've told for years. And I guess I'm going to have to get a Grateful Dead shirt uh, made up uh, from that walk. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, hell yeah mark would buy it hell yeah right <laughs> dude that's cool i love those shirts I, I did see the website before and that's why i kind of asked you and i forgot to ask the second part because i knew you had the restaurant that they're not connected then that's just two separate entities so you don't go to the web the uh, website for the restaurant thinking you're gonna buy the shirts uh, i think if you actually go to the restaurant you can buy some shirts oh but, all right well, uh, that works there is not a magical door that leads from one to the other thing <laughs> The clothing line is about 90% online, but uh, yeah, it's, it's good, going really well. Actually, it's doing very well. And uh, Sweet. I work on that and Billy and I uh, work on a lot of the designs together. So that's kind of fun. Nice. Very yeah. cool. I, I will end up ordering one because every time somebody comes on here and plugs something, I end up buying everything. Well, and then my wife yells at me. Don't let me spill any beans, but if you put Joel 20 in the code, you'll get 20% off. Okay. She'll be happy. There you go. 20%. I just saved you 20%. I, I'd give it to you if I could, but I can't. No, nah, that's, that's fine. I'm but, just a guy in, in the ether, and this is electronics, and I'm not really here. <laughs> no, I will, I'll definitely pick one up. But, dude, thanks again for coming on. That was a lot of fun. And please, if you ever want to come back on for anything, you want to plug anything, you want to come back on because it was fun, please come back on. That was great. If you guys are ever really hurting, you know, give, me, give me a jingle. <laughs> All right. Will do, man. You be it's well. It's a pleasure. All right. Be well. Thanks. Take care, Joel. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, I guess we're going to have to end this episode right here. But if you've missed an episode, you can always go over to our website, duelingdecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, really everywhere podcasts are available. And while you're on those interwebs, head on over to facebook.com forward slash duelingdecades, where you can join our private group, and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard.